We began a series uh, some weeks ago that we've entitled Reigning in Life, and we're using Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 as a, as a beginning point, text scripture, golden text, as Brother Hagin used to call them. Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost and says in verse 17, for if by one man's offense. Now, it, it, um, it might serve us well for you to know a little bit about the Greek language, and you don't have to be an expert in the Greek language to understand the Bible by any means. But there are four different tenses for the word if in, uh, in the Greek. The first tense is the one Paul uses very often, and it, it's, uh, an example is here. Another example is over in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He said, if God be for us, who can be against us? In the English language, if just means if. But in the Greek language, there are different ways that the word can be used. The word if can be used, and those tenses determine the context of what he's saying. The first tense, as I said, is used here in Romans 5.17 and Romans 8.31 as well as a number of other places. It literally means for if, and we know that it is. So he's saying, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, and we know that's what happened. Romans 8.31, for if God be for us and we know that it is, then who can be against us? We, we could change the word and say since. For since by one man's sin death reigned by one. Or for since God be for us, who can be against us? That's really the meaning of the of this word if as it's used. So he's speaking of something that everybody understands this is how it how it works, this is what it means, and that's the meaning he's trying to convey, therefore. Paul uses if a lot of times, but not the way that most Christians use if. See, for example, we would we could say, if the word of God is true, then healing is mine. Well, a lot of Christians would say, well, we're not sure if the words are true or not. We'll wait and see if we get healed and then try to determine. That's not what the Bible means when it uses the word if. If Paul was to say, if the word of God is true, then Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, he would mean it, for if the word of God is true and we know that it is, therefore Jesus took our infirmities. You see what I mean? So that's what's being said here in Romans 5.17, for if or since by one man, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by that one man and his action, much more, much more. We've said this before, but I think it bears repetition. Whenever the phrase much more is used, it doesn't just mean here's a comparison. Much more means they're so far apart they shouldn't even be compared. I mean, that'd be like comparing the life of a human being to the life of an ant. Now, some people in, in the evolution, the abortion issues and all that kind of stuff, that's what they think. Life is life. Well, not according to God. Man is on a higher plane of life, has a higher form of life than anything else. He's the only thing that's been made a spirit being. So here it's like saying, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more, so much more, so much that it shouldn't even be compared by another man's action, speaking of Jesus, much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, whatever anybody wants to think about this verse, it cannot be argued. It has to be accepted that Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. If he's writing by the Holy Ghost, then this is God speaking to us. And if he's writing by the Holy Ghost, and I mean that in Greek first tense, since we know that he is, that means that God is identifying that there is a means and an intent for man to reign in life more than death reigns over him. More than death has ever reigned over you, saved or unsaved. More than death has any has had any impact 
in your entire existence on this earth, you are intended and have been provided a means to reign in life in a much greater way. Now, most of the time, the things that keeps us from uh, accepting truths like this is we think about the things that we've done wrong. We look at our mistakes and we look at where, where we messed up and we think, well, if we could just erase that mistake, then, then we'd be okay with God. Well, the blood of Jesus did erase that mistake. So really, whether we know it or not, what we're saying is, and most people don't think this true to really figure it out, but you judge this for yourself and see if this isn't true. If we could erase it from our memory, then we'd be okay. Bible says Jesus has already done the work. Bible says Jesus became a propitiation. We'll look at Romans chapter 3 in just a minute. Jesus became a propitiation, literally an exchange for us. And by that exchange, there was a remission, a removal, an erasure of sins in the past. Well, if your sins have been erased, why do we think we're unworthy? Because we haven't erased it. God has. You talk to God about your past failures, he won't know what you're talking about. Oh, Father, I did such terrible things. He's going to say, when? Well, you know, way back then. No, I don't know. Because Jesus erased those. He didn't just cover them up. God didn't just look away and say, okay, we will act like that That never happened. The Bible says it really never happened by the work of Jesus. But that's dependent on some things. It's dependent on you taking hold of or receiving. That's what the word receive here means in Romans 5, 17. It means to actively take hold of the abundance of grace. To actively take hold of the abundance of grace. We've said this before as well, but I, I, I just have to say it every time we use the word grace. There is such a misunderstanding, it seems to me, in the body of Christ on the word grace, and there are so many definitions. The best definition I can come up with is since everything was done, everything Jesus did for us was done by grace, then grace means the finished work of Jesus. As a bottom line definition, everything pertaining to grace is what God did for us through Jesus. Therefore, the abundance of grace means the abundance of the finished work of Jesus. Now, most people are looking for a feeling out of grace. Most people are looking for some kind of emotional response. Grace is not an emotional response. Grace is simply the action that Jesus undertook in his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, to erase your past nature, erase your sin nature. So abundance of grace has to mean the finished work of Jesus, to actively take hold of the finished work of Jesus. Now, a lot of Christians do that up to the point of forgiveness of sins, not the erasure of sin nature, just the forgiveness of sins. Well, okay, God forgave me of my sins, but I know how bad I messed up, and he must remember too. He's got to be at least as smart as I am. So therefore, God forgave my sins, but only because he had to. Nope. That's not the abundance of grace. That's a wrong idea of forgiveness. I don't know if you know this or not, but forgiveness is not a term that's used for the unbeliever. Forgiveness is only used for the believer. Remission is the term that's used for the unbeliever. Remission means the erasure of the sin nature. Forgiveness means you accepting God's forgiveness for when you've messed up after you've been born again. Forgiveness is a New Testament term. It's a believer's term. It's not an unbeliever's term. Remission is the unbeliever term. That means a new life, a new nature being born into us by the abundance of grace or the finished work of Jesus. So the conditions for reigning in life are to take hold of, to actively take hold of. It doesn't accidentally happen. 
You have to actively take hold of. That means to find out about it, understand it, and therefore receive it by faith and live up to what the Bible says no matter how you feel. That's the tough part. The tough part is to stand there and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus while you feel unworthy. Because that's where the devil will scream in your ear and say, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. Well, lying based on what? If we're going by our feelings, and if the feelings are the benchmark of our life, the standard which, by which we live by, then yeah, we would be lying. But the Bible says to live by the word of God as the benchmark and the standard for our life. So no matter what my feelings say, if I'm doing what the Bible says, I can't be lying. Because God's not a liar and he can't lie. So they which receive the abundance, take hold of, actively take hold of the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Can you grow in righteousness? Nope. You can grow in your knowledge of it, but you can't grow in righteousness. You'll never be any more righteous than you are when you accept Jesus and his sacrifice as the payment for sin. That's it. You know why? Because it's a gift. It's not a progression. It's not an earning thing. It's a simple gift. And once you accept the gift, you can't get any more of the gift than the gift. If I gave you a car, the car is not going to grow. It's a gift. And say, I'm giving you my car. I would never do that. <laughs> Unless the Lord told me to. But he won't do that. You can't grow in a gift. A gift is simply what it is. It's a gift. You can't grow in righteousness. You can grow in your understanding of it. You can grow in your knowledge of it. You can grow in the acceptance of it. But that's you growing, not the gift. You'll never be any more righteous than you were when you said, Jesus, come into my heart. That's it. That's the pinnacle for righteousness. Now, some people will hear that and they'll say, yeah, it's been all downhill from there. Because I've messed up so many times. No, you messing up doesn't change the gift. Now, there's forgiveness for you for where you have messed up, but it doesn't change the gift. The gift is yours whether you ever use it or not. If I gave you the car, you wouldn't have to drive it, but the car is still yours. That's exactly the way some people are living where righteousness is concerned. It's been given to them, and they don't take advantage of it. Now, turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. Paul talks a lot about righteousness with the Romans, the letter of the Romans, and it's one of the... the um, the best doctrinal thesis letters that, that Paul wrote. It, it's, it's complete in a way that some others are not. Many of the other letters just kind of hit some of the high spots, but Paul really goes into some detail and some depth with the Romans. And notice what he said. We'll pick out some verses here. Start in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 20. Because so many of us are focused on if we would do better, then God would like us more. At least we'd feel like he would. But it says here in verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, he's talking about the law of Moses. But let me ask you a question. Why is he talking to Gentiles, Romans, about the law of Moses? They don't know about the law of Moses. They don't care about the law of Moses. So when he talks about the law, we could certainly understand that he's talking about the law of Moses because that's what he deals with. He's a Jew. He came out of the law of Moses. But the Gentiles he's writing to are not talking about the law of Moses. They're not concerned about the law of Moses. There's really not a whole lot of pressure. Some, the Jews have, have come and tried to impose the law of Moses on some of them. But by and large, they don't know and don't care. You wouldn't go to the mission field somewhere where nobody's ever heard of any, anything about Moses and start talking about the law of Moses and being free from the law of Moses, would you? 
wouldn't make sense. They don't know. They don't care. It's not part of their culture. It's not a part of the Roman culture. So he says that where he talks about the deed of the law, that certainly would include the law of Moses. But the deeds of the law he's talking about are the very things that you and I deal with, the thoughts, the ideas that if only we were better. And he says that if you did everything that you think would make you better, that still wouldn't justify you. You can't. You'll never live up to perfection. But if you were able to, you'd find out at the end of the road, gee, why did I waste my time with that? Everything that we strive for based on our feelings doesn't get us anywhere with God. Now, folks, if feeling unworthy helped, I would encourage it. But it just doesn't work. It doesn't do anything except rob you of the things that you could participate in. It doesn't do anything but rob you of the things of God that are already yours. So why would we want to do that? We know it's the devil that pushes us into us to it. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that tries to condemn us. He's the one that brings up our past mistakes. God doesn't do that. God doesn't talk to us about what terrible people we are. There's a conviction, uh, an inward witness, a conscience on the inside of us that says, okay, we shouldn't have done that. Let's make it right. And that's it. God's done with it. Because once you do that, you receive forgiveness of whatever you did, and then it's over. Now, when you discipline your kids, how long do you want them to remember what they did? Well, you want them to have an understanding of it so it keeps them from doing it again. But my goodness, I don't want my 19-year-old son coming and apologizing for stuff he did when he was six. Let it go, bud. Why don't we do that spiritually? We We keep holding on to things. So that's what he's talking about. He said, by no deeds, no actions of yours will bring you justification. Now, the word justified literally means to make righteous. So everything that we as Christians, or many Christians do anyway, everything that we get caught up in trying to do to make ourselves in better standing with God doesn't work anyway. That's what he's saying. Doesn't work. So many people talk about their lives being so busy. Here's a great way to make a lot of extra time in your life. Quit trying to be better with God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, or the works of the flesh, in other words, there shall no flesh be justified or made righteous in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That would mean the actions of the flesh just bring knowledge of sin. Well, once you know about it, isn't that enough? You have to keep going back over and over and over. Some people say, well, you know, in every adversity, there's a lesson to be learned. Yeah, that's true. There's a lesson to be learned in sickness. A lot of people say, God's trying to teach me in sickness. Well, folks, there is a lesson to be learned in sickness. You know what that lesson is? It's better to be well. That's it. Learn the lesson and move on. There's a lesson to be learned by lack and poverty. And that is it's better to have plenty. So learn that lesson and move on. You don't have to live there. You don't have to keep going back there and visiting it time and time and time again. Once you learn the lesson, move on. And thank God through Jesus, there is healing. Thank God through Jesus, there is provision. So learn that and move on. That's what he's saying. But now... But now, but now, verse 21, the righteousness of God without or separate from or apart from the law 
is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law never could bring righteousness, and righteousness is only only comes separate from or apart from the law. So anything you're trying to do, any action of your flesh you're trying to do to put yourself in greater position or greater stead with God doesn't work. That's not how you're justified before God. Which means you're wasting your time if you're trying to do something to make yourself in better standing with God. Why? Because that standing with God, that righteousness, which means right standing with God, comes as a gift. You can't improve on the gift. But now the righteousness of God without or apart from the law is manifested, is manifested, not going to be manifested in the sweet by and by, is manifested. And it was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets talked about this righteousness. They couldn't experience it, but they talked about it. They saw that it was part of God's plan. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Okay, if you can't work yourself into a better place with God, how do you get there? By faith of Jesus or in Jesus Christ, notice this, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Every believer has the same place of righteousness. Now, we have a a habit, and it's not a good one, but we have developed the habit of looking at certain people in the body of Christ, and we think, oh, wow, they have really got it together. Well, they're not any more righteous than you are. I used to have to fight that with Brother Hagin. I'd think, wow, here's a guy that walked with God for 50-something years. I'll never get there. Look at what God does with him. Well, then I saw him lose his temper sometimes. I saw him do things and take a step outside of love. I saw him be human, and I thought, well, this doesn't fit my picture. I thought he never missed it. I thought that's why God used him so much, because he never missed it. Well, he missed it just like everybody else does. He's human. Everybody is. So the righteousness of God, which is by or which comes by faith in Jesus, is upon all and unto all them that believe. There is no difference in any believer. No difference between Jew and Greek. No difference between somebody that struggles to get right with God versus somebody that just accepts it. You ever seen anybody that accepted the things of God easy? It's easy to get mad at those people. You see people that don't live any better lives than you do, and all of a sudden things just work for them, and you think, what is wrong with them? Don't they have enough sense to feel unworthy like the rest of us? But some people just put it aside. Some people just just set it aside and say, well, Jesus did the work, so okay. And it works. Darn it. No, we want to be like that too. Some people just have an easier time setting things aside. So the gift of righteousness, which is by faith in Jesus, is unto all and upon all them to believe. There's no difference in any believer. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all start in the same spot. We all start from the same place of spiritual death. So there's no difference. So the only thing that makes a difference is what you do in accepting righteousness. It's not on God's end. It's on your end. God does the same thing for everybody from his end. Verse 24, being justified, being made righteous freely by his grace, the finished work of Jesus, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've already been made righteous. Whatever you're struggling to get to, quit it. You're already there. Verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Now, propitiation is one of my favorite words in the Bible because everybody knows what it means. It doesn't take any explanation for that. Propitiation, for goodness sakes. There's different definitions for propitiation. One is mercy seat. It's uh, the mercy seat that was set on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That was where the blood was sprinkled. 
It, it signifies the place where the sacrifice was made, not where the animal was killed, but where the blood was offered as a sacrifice. But the whole purpose for the sacrifice was to make an exchange. This word propitiation is the root word that Paul uses for the word reconciliation, which means an exchange. So literally it's saying Jesus, through his sacrifice, became an exchange. The redemption that we have through Jesus is because Jesus made an exchange. Whom God has set forth, talking about Jesus, to be in a propitiation or an exchange through faith in his blood. Notice how the exchange takes place. Through faith in his blood. That means that the foundation of righteousness is the blood of Jesus. When you feel unworthy and the Bible says you're righteous, you're saying the blood of Jesus wasn't enough. Now, I know nobody does that actively. Nobody does that, uh, you know, on purpose. But does anybody want to take that position and stand before God and say, well, you know, I just didn't think Jesus' blood was really sufficient, so I thought you needed my help to live right. How stupid would that be? That's what the Bible's telling us. And folks, when you feel unworthy, when you feel like there's something you need to do to make yourself right before God, but instead you say, no, I accept the blood of Jesus just simply by faith, that is the strongest position you can take that pleases God because faith is the thing that pleases Him. That's tough to do. You have to overcome some of your thoughts. You have to overcome some of your feelings. But it's the thing to do. Whom God has set forth to be an exchange through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Now notice this, to declare his righteousness. Folks, please understand that Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, here's how God sees things. How does God see things? God sees things like this. The blood of Jesus was set forth as an exchange for you and me, our sin nature, for his righteousness, so that his righteousness can be declared. You ever gotten mad because God wouldn't show himself? I mean, it's easy to look at things from a natural standpoint and say, God, why don't you just do some miracle? Why don't you just do some great thing? Why don't you just prove yourself in front of everybody? That's very seldom that God does that. Usually the signs and wonders and miracles, the the supernatural things that he does, he does kind of behind the scenes. He doesn't do them to make a show. Do you realize what a show God could put on if he wanted to? Well, I want him to. But I found out something very important. I don't control that. But there are some things God shows or declares. One of the things that he declares is his righteousness. And that's by faith in the blood of Jesus. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. That means the erasure of sins. Remission means they're done away with. Doesn't mean covered up. Means they're done away with for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now notice verse 26. To declare, translators added the, the phrase I say, but that's not in the original text, so let's pull that out. Paul is saying to declare at this time his righteousness, to declare at this time his righteousness. Now folks, most people are expecting that when they get to heaven, they'll do better. All we got to do is get rid of this flesh. Jesus comes back, either gives us our redeemed body or we die and go to heaven, and then everything will be better. We won't have to deal with sin. We won't have to deal with the flesh. We won't have to deal with temptation. We won't have to deal with any of that stuff. Then we can really be righteous. But, folks, the Bible is saying, here's the Holy Ghost saying, God has declared his righteousness now in this present time, not in the time to come. 
Not in heaven which is ahead of us. Not in the sweet by and by. To declare his righteousness at this present time. To what end? Because he wants everybody to know how sharp you are? No. Here's why God made you righteous. It's right here. Let's read. That he might be. That he might be. That he might be. Just. The word just is the word righteous. And the justifier, the one who makes righteous. Him that believes in Jesus. Do you know why the blood of Jesus is so necessary to take hold of? Do you know why the gift of righteousness is necessary to take hold of from God's point of view? Now, there are certainly benefits from our point of view. Reigning in life is one. But from God's point of view, the whole point, the whole purpose was that it was his declaration that he's righteous. And that he's the one that makes righteous everybody that believes in Jesus. You're righteous not for your sake. You're righteous for God's sake. Your righteousness is proof that he is righteous and that he's the one that makes righteous all those that believe in Jesus. So therefore, when we reject his righteousness, whether it's feelings, thoughts, unworthiness, uh, whatever it is, whatever our reasons, whatever our justifications are for, for rejecting any form, any part of his righteousness, we're saying God's not really righteous and he's not really the one that made us righteous by believing in Jesus. Anybody want a purpose to take that position? Well, no, you'd have to be a fool to stand up and say that. But that's what we say. When we reject the righteousness of God, that's what we say. When we reject the righteousness of God based on our feelings of being unworthy or knowing what we did in the past or whatever that we're hanging on to, that's what we're saying. We're saying, God, you're really not who you said you were. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Folks, I don't know if this is helping you or not, but I'm learning a lot of stuff about righteousness. And I got to tell you, my learning experience is, uh, um, well, to be charitable, changing some of my thinking, to be brutally frank. I'm getting really upset with myself at some things that I've done. Because I never intended to do them. I never intended to stand in God's face and say, you're really not righteous because of my feelings. You didn't really make me righteous because of uh, the way I feel about this. But that's exactly what I've done. There's no point in covering it up. That's what I've done. I did it in ignorance. So it's not like God holds it against me. But he does expect me to learn and grow. Just like he does you. Now notice what Paul said in verse 16. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus... The good news about what Jesus has already done, the finished work of Jesus. That's what the gospel is about. It's about the finished work of Jesus. For it, we could even say it this way. The gospel is the good news of the abundance of the grace. It's how you find out. It's the only way you can. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that Paul saying the same thing as he that receives the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that shall reign in life? Because this word salvation means more than just forgiveness of sins. The word salvation means healing, means deliverance, means rescue, means safety, means soundness. The good news of what Jesus has accomplished 
is the power of God to deliver you from whatever has you bound. It's the power of God to heal your body from whatever sickness is attacking you. It's the power of God to rescue you from whatever situation you're in. It's the power of God to make you safe no matter what your circumstances are. It's the power of God to make you sound of mind no matter what's coming against you. Now, if you're lacking in rescue, deliverance, healing, safety, and soundness, it's because there's something you don't understand about what Jesus did. It means that there's power that's available through the finished work of Jesus that you're not accessing because you don't know what the Bible says. It's just a simple fact. And, folks, I would submit to you that that's where 99% of the Christian world lives, needing rescue, deliverance, healing, safety, or soundness. Why? Is God not doing his part? No, they haven't found out the good news of what Jesus has already done. It's just that simple. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. All it takes is faith to everyone that believes. To the Jew also and also to the Jew and also to the Greek, meaning the Jews and Gentiles alike. Now notice he says in verse 17, for therein in the gospel, the good news of the finished work of Jesus. Now as far as Paul is concerned, the gospel is the revelation he received about what Jesus did on the cross. Paul said that the whole world would be judged by his gospel. What does that mean? That means the world is going to be judged by the revelation of who we are in Christ, what Jesus accomplished for us, and therefore what belongs to us as revealed in the letters that Paul wrote to the church. He said the whole world will be judged by that. He's pretty sure of what he knows. Imagine if I stood up and said the whole world is going to be judged by my preaching. Boy, that would get some strange looks, wouldn't it? Wow, Pastor Mike, you really think you're something, don't you? Well, the whole world will be judged by the truth of what I'm preaching. But Paul went further. He knew he was the only one that had the gospel. He knew he was the only one that had the revelation. So he said, the whole world will be judged by my gospel. He's saying God will take this truth, not just because of him, but it will spread from him. He'll take this truth and make it something that the whole world is subject to living by or answering thereto. Wow. No insecurity issues there, huh? No need for them. He said, for therein, in the gospel of Christ, is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, stop and think about Paul for a minute. We know his conversion experience. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Saul, was, uh, which was the name he had before God changed it. He was on the road to Damascus. He had been actively involved in and participated in not only the, the imprisonment of a lot of Christians because of the, the teaching that the apostles uh, primarily were in Jerusalem were, um, were proclaiming that the law of Moses was not necessary, even though they were living by a lot of it. But Jesus was the Messiah. They were preaching Jesus was the Messiah. He was raised from the dead. And, and Saul, who was part of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, he couldn't handle it. And so he actively sought out authority from the, the Jewish council, same ones that crucified Jesus, to give him letters so that under their authority he could imprison Christians and even have them killed. And he had already done that. And on the road to Damascus it says there was a light that shined from heaven around about him and his company and everybody fell to the ground. And Paul heard the voice. Now, Paul's account in uh, Acts 26 says that the others heard the sound of the voice but they couldn't make out the words. And Jesus spoke to 
to Saul from this light, from the vision. And he identified himself. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul said, who art thou, Lord? I don't know who you are, but it's obvious that you've got the power as I'm laying here on the ground. Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you persecutest. It's hard to kick against the pricks. And then Saul said something very instructive, very important. He said, what would you have me do, Lord? So he confesses Jesus as Lord, and he asks him, what do you want me to do? And that's where Jesus said, go into the city, and it'll be told you what to do. Now, for three days, Paul said by, the, by his own testimony, he said he could not see for the, for the glory of that light. The glory of God was so bright that when it affected Saul or came upon Saul as an unsaved man, a spiritually dead man, it caused him to not be able to see. Now, Paul knew he wasn't blind because of sickness or blindness or anything like that. He knew that it was because of the light. Now, put yourself in Saul's position for a minute. Imagine that this happened to you. Now, you've met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Your life has changed because you recognize, okay, Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, I've got that part. But is there anybody on the face of the earth that is more deserving of death than Saul? Don't think that the Christians that Saul put in jail and had imprisoned all of a sudden were let go because Saul got saved. And wouldn't that be the irony? If you were a Christian that's now imprisoned in Jerusalem or whatever other city he might have been to, here you are, you're imprisoned because you believe in Jesus, and now Saul is saved out preaching Jesus and you stay in jail. That would give opportunity for some why me, Lord, moments. Now, it's easy to say that we'd rejoice. Oh, I'm so glad Saul got saved. But I doubt that there's very many of us that wouldn't at least be tempted to think, why didn't he get saved before he got to me? Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And the way the Bible indicates it, it's almost like that gave him greater incentive or or gave him boldness to go to the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, to get letters to do even more damage to the church. Nobody deserves death more than Saul does. And I don't doubt for a moment that for those next three days while he's blind, he's wondering what's next. At least for the early part of it. We, we have to assume that during part of that, he got some of the revelation that he did about Jesus. And during part of that three days, he saw a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him to receive his sight. So he knows for some part of that time, some part of that three days, that he's not going to stay in that condition. But he deserves to. Yet Paul, deserving of death, finds life. Jesus does not condemn him. Jesus does not spend the next three days showing him hell or the hell he's going to experience here on this earth or anything like that. He doesn't show him anything that would condemn him or put him down. Jesus knows that his condition is the same as every other person who is unsaved, which is spiritually dead. Without Jesus, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul starts at the same place everybody else does. And he may have done some things that we're aware of that had a greater consequence as far as people's lives and impacting other people's lives are concerned. But everybody starts in the same place. And so instead of finding the death that Paul deserves, he finds life. And then he realizes what that life means. This abundant life that Jesus said he came to bring... That's what Jesus starts teaching him about. 
He starts teaching him about reigning in life. He starts teaching him about restored to authority, being restored to authority, the authority that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden when he sinned. He starts teaching him about being restored to fellowship with God, the same fellowship Adam had in the Garden of Eden when he walked with God in the cool of the day. He starts talking about being made a new creature, being made new from the inside, not the same old person that's subject to do the same stuff that he did before, but now a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus starts teaching him about. That's what the Holy Ghost begins to reveal to him. So when Paul talks about righteousness, he's coming from a different position than we might think that he is. He's not coming from a theologian position. He's not coming from a professorial position where he says, oh, yes, and let me explain to you about righteousness. No, he's talking about somebody that lives instead of being deserving of the death that he deserves, receiving the death that he deserves. Righteousness was huge with Paul. It should be huge with you. You know what the Bible's about? The Bible is about the Garden of Eden. And then once the fall takes place, it's all about, until Jesus, it's all about God trying to convince people that they can do more than what they think they can do. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. What does Moses do? I can't do that. Why? I can't talk. You're talking to a burning bush. Your speech pattern is really not the issue. And so what does God do? Moses goes through six different excuses for why he can't go, and God answers every one of them. Finally, God gets mad about it and says, go do what I told you to do. And Moses winds up doing it. The children of Israel then see the works that Moses does and think, Wow, this is unbelievable. Nobody can do this kind of stuff. Moses must be really somebody with God. Now, can I ask you a question? Was Moses somebody with God that nobody else could be? He had a job from God that nobody else could have. He was the spokesman for the children of, the spokesman for God to the children of Israel. But why? Because he was more righteous than them? Did he earn that place? Well, let's see. He grew up in Pharaoh's house, being taught in all the false religions and false gods of the Egyptians. He discovers that his mother and father are Jews, and so he kills an Egyptian slave master and buries him in the sand. Pharaoh finds out about it and threatens to kill him, so he runs away for 40 years, living on the backside of the desert. I'm not sure exactly where the backside of the desert is, but it sounds like a bad place. And after that, now he's 80 years old. You'd think his life is pretty well used up. That's when God appears to him and says, now, Moses, you're ready for me to use you. You weren't ready when you're living in Pharaoh's palace where you thought you had everything. You weren't ready when you took matters into your own hands and you tried to deliver the Egyptians or tried to deliver the Israelites by killing the Egyptian slave master. You weren't in a position for me to use you when you were running from Pharaoh because he threatened to kill you and then commanded that all of your names and records and everything related to you, be stricken from all the records of Egypt. None of those qualified you. Now, you would think if anybody would be qualified for God to use them, it would have been Moses who was living in Pharaoh's house. But God had to take 40 years to get Pharaoh's house out of Moses. 
before he was really in a position to be used. Now, by the time he comes to Moses and speaks to him about doing something, Moses is not the great prince of Egypt any longer. Moses is a shepherd raising sheep on the backside of the desert where there is nothing for the sheep to eat, there's no water for the sheep to drink. His future is not really very bright on the backside of the desert. Who would raise sheep there? It seems to indicate to me, at least the idea is, that his main concern is nobody finding him. Not great success in life. And that's where God speaks to him and says, now, Moses, I can use you. Here's what I want you to do. And Moses starts making excuses. I can't do that. No, I can't do that. And what does God do? God convinces him, yeah, you can. Joshua takes over Moses' position. After they start coming to the to promised land, 40 years down the road, now Moses is 120. Time for him to go off the scene. God speaks to Joshua. Joshua, Moses talks to Joshua. Joshua says, I can't stand in your place. He talks to God about it. He says, there's no way. The people that respected Moses, they saw him do signs and wonders and miracles. What does God do? He convinces Joshua he can do it. Moses lays hands on him. He imparts, God imparts the spirit of wisdom to him by Moses laying his hands on him. And then God says, be strong and of good courage. Just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What's he doing? He's trying to convince Joshua, you can do what I told you you can do. The judges come along. He, he, Joshua conquers the land of Canaan. Hundred foot walls fall down. From a guy that starts off saying, I can't do this. The judges come along. The Lord appears to Gideon. Said, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. Well, he's threshing wheat in a place that is not conducive for it. When you thresh wheat, you take the wheat stalks and you throw them up in the air and the wind separates them. He's doing that inside. There's not much wind inside. Which indicates he's not working with a whole lot of crops here. Somebody tried to describe it as trying to play golf in a closet. That's pretty similar to what Gideon's doing. And the angel appears and says to Gideon, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And he says, no, I'm not. You got the wrong guy. I'm the least of the least of the tribes of Israel. I mean, my tribe is looked down on by the other tribes, and I'm the lowest one in that tribe. So what does the angel do? The angel spends the next several minutes trying to convince him, you can do what I'm telling you to do. Folks, everything about the Old Testament is God trying to convince people you can do what I'm telling you to do. And them say, no, 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 I can't do that. No. Then Jesus comes along. You know, one of the only ones that God doesn't have to try to convince in the Old Testament is David. David's an interesting study because David spends his time out in the wilderness where nobody knows, nobody, he doesn't know anybody can hear him. Other people apparently do. They know about his, his skill in playing instruments and he, in, he invents instruments to play and stuff like that. And he spends a lot of time out there singing and speaking psalms. And a lot of those psalms have to do with God's plan down the road. A lot of those psalms have to do with the righteousness that Jesus would bring us through his death, burial, and resurrection. God doesn't have to convince David. At least not that we know of. Now, David learns two ways. Number one, he learns by the time that he spends ministering to the Lord. And then second, he learned on lions and bears. 
Now, we know that by the time he meets Goliath, he's about 17 years old. We don't know how old he was with the lion and the bear. He could have been 13, 14, 15 years old. But he learns with things that there's no question in his mind who's the strongest. And he learns an incredible lesson that would be good for us to know, and we ought to be able to take it for granted. But we don't. And that is, that lesson is, that it's not about the size of the fight that you're in. It's about who's in you. Because he found when the lion came out, he could have just given up the sheep. You know, tell dad, (laughs) it was a lion. Hey, what was I supposed to do? You want your son to risk his life to save a sheep? Well, yeah, son, those sheep are really important. He knows he's no physical match for it, so he knows he's got to have help, and he gets that help. He gets that supernatural help and gets the sheep back and destroys the lion. Then a bear comes out. Now, bears are usually bigger than lions. i got the same problem here if I'm David. It'd be real easy to say, well, look, I saved the one from the lion. One out of two, that's pretty good. But he does the same thing. He goes out against something that he knows he does not have the physical capacity to overcome or or to defeat. So he needs help. And he gets that help. So when the Goliath comes, what's the big deal? I've already seen the lion. Goliath can't be as strong as a lion. Goliath can't be as tough as a bear. What's the big deal? David learned the way you're supposed to learn. And as a result, you never find any place in the Scripture where God has to try to talk David into doing what he has for him to do. Never. He found that the greater one would help him. Isn't that what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost in you? See, that's the way we're supposed to learn too. We should not be in the Old Testament position of God trying to talk us into doing what he tells us to do. And taking the place of Moses or, or Joshua or any of the Gideon or any of those other guys of the Old Testament saying, oh, God, I, I just can't do that. Yet that's exactly what most of the church does. They see what the Bible tells them to do. They see the instruction that Jesus gives us. And they say, oh, well, yeah, but uh, that maybe somebody else could, but not me. Well, why not you? Folks, the Old Testament men did exploits when righteousness was just a promise. For you, righteousness has been made real. It's God's declaration in this present time that he's righteous and he's the one that makes righteous everybody that believes in Jesus. Now, let me show you what that's supposed to translate into. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. I see what time it is. We won't go much longer. I want you to be able to beat the Baptist to the restaurants. You think I'm kidding. (laughs) James chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 13, not because it has any bearing on what we're saying. I just like it. It says, is any among you afflicted? The word afflicted means in uh, going through tests, trials, or persecutions. Is any among you afflicted? Let them call for the church and have them put them on the prayer list. No. Nothing wrong with the church prayer list. Although, if I'm going to deliver something to the church prayer list, even our church prayer list, I don't know if somebody's going to care about my situation as much as I do. 
I'm not going to trust somebody else to pray in my situation. No way. Is any among you afflicted in, in going through a test trial or a problem? Let him pray. God seems to want to hear you pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. I have never yet had anybody ask, who has the song list for the church for when we are happy so we can get people in the church to sing for us? Same people that want us to pray don't want us to sing for them. They'll do their own singing. Everybody's happy to do their own singing. Well, you should be just as happy to do your own praying. It's your relationship with God. And, folks, that's the whole point of everything that he's saying. He's talking about relationship. If you're in a problem, if you're going through a test trial or a hard place, pray. You pray. Why? Because God cares about you. You've been born again. You've been made righteous. You have rights and privileges as a child of God. If you're married, sing your own psalms. Is any sick among you? The implication is there's not supposed to be anybody sick. Is any sick among you? Verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, the word um, uh, where it says, is any sick among you? Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says that this word sick means beyond doing something for yourself. Because, see, you could be attacked by sickness, and that would fall into the affliction category of verse 13. Are you being afflicted with sickness? Then let him pray. Verse 14 is talking about, are you in a situation where you're beyond doing something for yourself? Do you need help? And everybody needs help sometimes. And that's the situation that he's describing here. Is any sick among you? Let him, let him call for the elders of the church. Notice it doesn't say wait for the church to have a prayer line. It's amazing to me. I used to see it with Brother Hagin when I would work with him. Cause he wouldn't have a, he wouldn't have a healing line every service or anything. And, and people knew him for the anointing that he had to minister to the sick. We have healing school here on Sunday nights and people, bless their heart, they will, some people will lose their salvation over me not having a, a healing line every Sunday night. They'll come up and they'll be just mad as hens. I came to be prayed for. Okay. You're here. I'm here. We can do that. Well, I thought you'd have a healing line. No, we don't have that every service. Well, what do you call it healing school for? Because we school people on healing. <laughs> now, the responsibility is for the individual. If you need help, get the help you need. We've had people even go into the hospital, not let anybody know, and then leave the church because they got mad because we didn't come to visit them. I was supposed to know. Well, I thought the Lord would show you. Well, I guess if he wanted me to know, he would have. But he didn't. So what does that tell you? Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the prayer is the same prayer that you pray in verse 13 for yourself. It's just added prayer power because you've got people in agreement with you. Verse 15, here's the result. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Notice it's not the elders that does the job. It's not the anointing with oil that does the job. It's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. You can pray the prayer of faith for yourself. But if you get in a situation where you need help, it's good to have other people that can pray the prayer of faith with you. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if, 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 if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice the same prayer of faith that forgives sins that heals the sick. And it does not say that everybody's sick because they've committed sins. It says, and if they've committed sins, which means some people are going to be sick just because the devil's attacking them. Not any 
action or any uh, thing that they did on their own. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Then it says in verse 16, I think the, the translators really did us a disservice by the way they uh, broke up the, the verse designations here. Where it says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. That should be its own separate verse. Because the last part of verse 16 should stand alone. Notice it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, he's not just talking about praying for one another to be healed. He's talking about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much in every area. And the way that the verse designation is set aside here is it's almost like it puts it together and the prayer of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man is only connected with the first part of verse 16. And it's not. The principle is very simply this. God hears and answers prayer, the prayers of the righteous. Now, some people will stop there and say, oh, yeah, if only we could find a righteous man. Now, the whole point is. If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, which is who Paul's, who James is writing to, he's writing to the church, he's saying God hears your prayer just like he hears anybody else's prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effectual fervent prayer, that means prayer has to be effective and it has to be from the heart. That's what fervent means. But you find in a person, any child of God, who prays effectively, meaning according to the principles that the Bible lays out for prayer, and there are different kinds of prayer. But the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, somebody that's made Jesus the Lord of their life, always gets an answer. Always gets an answer. It's amazing to me how many Christians have never gotten answers to their prayers. Folks, when I found out how to pray some 25 years ago, I haven't had any prayers not answered. Now, I used to hear Brother Hagin say that. He said, it's been so many years, 30, 40, 50 years, however long it was, different times I'd hear him. He'd say, it's been so many years since I haven't had a prayer answered or since I've had a prayer that wasn't answered. And I'd think, you're kidding. How's that possible? Well, he learned the rules of prayer. Folks, this is not rocket science. God knew he was working with you. <laughs> Seriously. He knew he was dealing with common people, people of common intelligence, like you and me. He knew he was going to deal with people in real-world situations. He couldn't make it too complicated. He had to make it simple enough for it for us to understand it. That's one of the things it says about Jesus. It says that the, the Pharisees were against him, but the common people loved him. They heard what he said and understood it. The Pharisees thought, what is he talking about? There is no fool like an educated fool. But Jesus talked in real world, real world, world examples. He talked on parables about planting seed and catching fish. He talked about stuff, talked in a way that people understood. He still does. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now notice the example he gives us of a righteous man. He says, Elijah, well, that's who Elias is. It's Elijah, verse 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. That means he was subject to emotions just like you and me. He was subject to temptations of the flesh, just like you and me. He had the same flesh. He had the same issues. And actually, he wasn't righteous. He wasn't made righteous. He had the promise of righteousness through Jesus. But he was many hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. You, however, have been born again and made a new creature in Christ Jesus. You are the one that God has declared himself to be righteous and the justifier or the one that makes righteous everybody that believes in Jesus. You're the example of God proving himself righteous. Elijah was not. 
Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And that's James' example by the Holy Ghost. That's James' example. Now, if you went back, we won't take time to do it, but if you went back to 1 Kings chapter 17, you'll find out that Elijah is nowhere on the scene, and all of a sudden he appears. We don't know anything about him. First uh, Kings 17, verse 1, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite. I don't know what a Tishbite is, but Elijah was one. And Elijah the Tishbite said, By the word of the Lord, it shall not rain again until I say so. That's quite an entrance. Several years later, he challenges the prophets of Baal. He says, how long halt you between two opinions? If Baal is God, let's serve him. I like Elijah. He was really straightforward and to the point. Let's find what works. Let's quit playing around at this stuff. Let's find what works. If Baal's God, let's serve him. But if God's God, then let's serve him. You remember the contest he had. We'll set up an altar there. Remember now they've had several years of drought. About three years, a little over three years of drought at that point in time. Almost three and a half. So water is the most precious commodity there is. So he says, all right, here's what we'll do. You put a sacrifice on the altar and call out to Baal. I'll do the same thing. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. Everybody says, yeah, that sounds good. So the prophets of Baal start their thing. They start crying out to God hour after hour after hour after hour. They're calling on Baal to do something. Baal apparently doesn't control fire from heaven. They're jumping up and down on the, the altar. They're acting crazy. They're cutting themselves with stones. Folks, serving the devil will make you nuts. Finally, Elijah starts making fun of him. Says, maybe he's out to lunch. You ought to cry louder. I bet he's in the bathroom. That's what it says. Finally, Elijah said, all right, that's enough. You've had your chance. Now, let's rebuild the altar. So they did. Where all the jumping on, the crazy people jumping on it had torn it down. Rebuilt the altar, restacked the wood, put the sacrifice up there. And then he says, all right, now dig a ditch around this thing. So he dug a ditch. He said, now bring in water and soak the altar, soak the sacrifice, soak the wood, and let all the water, excess water, run off into the, the trench that you just dug. Now, as I said, water is the most precious commodity there is. So he's asking for water that could be used for drinking to now be poured on the sacrifice. He's making it as hard for God to answer as possible. We always want things to be easy. We always want circumstances to be pleasant and comfortable. Folks, look for the hard places. That's where God shows up. Don't ever run from adversity. Don't ever run from difficulty. Don't think that God's going to answer when everything is smooth and clear and all that kind of stuff. God answers when you're in the middle of trouble where he can show this was me and only me. Because if you can handle the situation, God will let you. It's a situation you get into that only God can fix. That's where he shows up. So then Elijah says a simple prayer. I love Elijah's prayer. He says, okay, Father, God, show that you're the one true God in heaven. Show that I'm your servant and show that I've done all these things according to your word. Love that prayer. Show that you're God. I'm your servant. And I did this according to your word. Fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood, consumes the rocks that the altar is made of vaporizes the water and everything around. And everybody 
stands there with their mouths open. And Elijah, recognizing the significance of the moment, says, all these prophets of Baal are false prophets. Bring me a sword. And he kills 450 of them. He kills 450 of them. I don't think you can get away with that today. But there's some principles about this story that I really, really like. (laughs) So what does he do next? He goes up into the mountain. And he prays. And he sends a runner. He says, go look to the horizon, see what you see. Runner goes, comes back, says, I don't see anything. Sky is just as clear as a bell. Prays some more, sends a runner a second time. What do you see? I don't see anything. Praise the third time, sends the runner. The runner says, I see a wisp of a cloud. It looks like it's the size of a man's hand. And that's when Elijah says to the runner, go tell Ahab to get ready for the biggest rain he's ever known. And it says it rains for three days and three nights. Now, for three and a half years, it hasn't rained because Elijah said so. Comes out of nowhere and says, it won't rain till I say so. And then three and a half years later, he says, okay, it's time now. And that's the example that the Bible gives us of a righteous man, a man that was not born again, a man that only had righteousness on a promise, not somebody that we see that God had to talk into his original work, but then immediately following the contest, Jezebel, who's controlled the prophets of Baal to control the people, then says, I'm going to kill Elijah this time tomorrow just like he killed my prophets. Well, now we find out who Elijah really is. We find out why he was a man subject to like passions as we are. Elijah starts running from the, 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 the wicked, the evil queen. Why? Is God out of fire? He can still get another sword. What's he running from? He's running from his own thoughts. He's running from his perceptions, just like you and I do. So he runs away. Runs up into the mountain and says, oh, God, just let me die. Now, he didn't want to die any more than you want to die when you asked to die. He wanted to die. All he had to do was stay where Jezebel was. She would have taken care of that. He didn't want to die. He wanted to complain. Now, folks, this is who the guy, this is the guy that just prayed rain. This is the guy that three and a half years before prayed and it wouldn't rain. Now he changes things just by his prayer. Is it because of the way that he is that he got his prayer answered? Couldn't be. Couldn't have been. Then what did it? What did it was very simply the relationship that he had with God because God said, I've got a work for you to do. That's what Jesus said was the basis for your prayer life. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, that means righteousness, and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. John 16, 23, Jesus said, in that day, talking about the day of his resurrection, the day of the church, the day we live in, he said, in that day, you shall ask me nothing. A better translation is you'll ask me no more questions. He's been the source for every bit of information they've had for the last three years. He said, but in that day, when I go to the Father, you shall ask me no more questions. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Jesus said, concerning the prayer of faith, Whatever you ask for believing shall be done unto you, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Everything that the Bible says in the New Testament about prayer is based on one and only one thing, and that is relationship. And that's what righteousness is about. 
Righteousness is about the ability to stand in the presence of God without a sense of guilt or inferiority because God has declared himself to be righteous by giving you a new life. When you understand that, when you understand that it's a legal contract based on relationship, when you understand that the Bible doesn't put any limitations on your prayer life as long as you're in him, meaning joined to him through the blood of Jesus and living according to the instructions of the word, that means your prayer life would have to be based on the word. When you understand that, You can stand fearlessly like Jesus did in front of Lazarus' tomb and say, Father, I thank you that you hear me always. Jesus commanded the wind and the sea to be still. Why? Because he was one with the Father, just like you're one with the Father. Jesus stood in the face of leprosy and sickness and disease, and he commanded to depart. Why? Because he was one with the Father. Now, that means the sickness and disease couldn't be from God because he'd have been working against God. It means the wind and the sea and the storm couldn't have been from God because he'd have been working against God. But his relationship with his father, the same relationship you have, the same one Jesus said, as my father and I are one, so you shall be one in us. You don't have a similar relationship. You've got the same relationship. And because of that same relationship, you are not only obliged, but in my opinion, obligated to carry out the work of God here on the earth just like Jesus was. Not having to be talked into it. Oh, I don't know. I just don't think I can. Well, of course you can. you got the greater one on the inside of you. That's what his declaration of righteousness is all about. And folks, please remember, God made you righteous through the blood of Jesus, not for your sake, but for his sake, that he could be declared righteous. And the one who makes righteous, everybody that believes. Brother Hagin said something about this, uh, James 5, verse 17, or verse 16, last part of verse 16, where it says, the effectual, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Brother Hagin said, I, I never will forget this. He said that, that he saw just a glimpse of this when he was still on the, the bed of sickness. He said, when I saw just a glimpse that I'd been made righteous, he said, I had no idea. It was like seeing a little glimmer of light through a keyhole. I didn't know anything about it like I do now. But he said that he wrote in his Bible, This makes me a prayer whiz. You know what a prayer whiz is? That means somebody that always gets their prayers answered. Guess what? Because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, whether you know it or not, you are a prayer whiz. Whatsoever you ask in his name, he gives it to you. God doesn't have to take it to a heavenly committee and say, well, what do you think? Nope. One of my righteous children have made a request. If it's based on the word, which means it's effective, and if it's from your heart, which means it's not just a pipe dream, but it's something that's from the inside, the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Amplified translation says of that verse that it turns to the advantage. Turns to the advantage. I like that. You want to turn things around? Pray effectively. Because you are righteous. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've made us righteous. Thank you, Father, that you've declared us righteous in declaring yourself righteous. Father, thank you that the claims of justice have been satisfied. The sin nature has been erased 
we have literally been washed in the blood of Jesus and made a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing it is to have a relationship with you. What a wonderful thing it is to know that you're always on our side. Us in you and you in us. So that we know that you always hear and answer our prayers. Oh, Father, open our eyes to the fact that you have made us righteous. Commissioned us to go into the earth just like you commissioned Jesus. To accomplish your plan, your purpose, and your will. Thank you, Father, that because we are righteous, have been made righteous, we have authority over sin. We have authority over sickness. We have authority over disease. We have authority over lack, just like Jesus did. Thank you that you hear us always. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together. Have a great Mother's Day. If you're not with your mom, make sure to call her. Contact her. It means a lot to those moms. You can come back and be with us tonight at 5 o'clock is prayer school, 6 o'clock is healing school. But either way, have a great day. hope this is the best Mother's Day any of you have ever had. God bless you. We love you. And you're dismissed.